Our next questions come from Sasha. Please go ahead, Sasha. Okay. Hi. Um, thanks for having me. It's my first time here, and uh, I'm a big fan. Um, so my question is this. I, in recent months, I have been going through a stressful situation, let's say related to a lawsuit, and it's the result, direct result of my own action, sort of a, a bad decision. Um, and hopefully it will be resolved soon in my favor and all that stuff. But in the meantime, it's been so incredibly um, stressful emotionally and financially because the other person is so high entropy and so focused on um, just whatever high entropy people are focused on, um, revenge, feeling complete again, thinking that, you know, avenging himself, whatever. I, I don't know what goes on through his head. But anyway, um, the silver lining in this situation has been that I have been doing a lot of meditation and a lot of soul searching and a lot of facing my own anxieties and fears. And um, and I've seen some interesting results, like the, the quality of my dreams is very different from, from it's ever been before. Um, for example, I recently had a dream of, uh, of being put in, in, I mean, it's not a dream that I would recognize as coming from my own unconscious mind. I was literally put in, a, in different situations um, that in real life would annoy me or, or upset me. Situations, you know, along the lines of being cut off on the road or something like that. Um, you know, someone literally bumping into you physically and not apologizing, just very simple things like that, that in real life might annoy me, might get me to say, hey, excuse me, what are you thinking? That sort of situation. But in the dream, I was all serene, totally not bothered by it. Um, very, very different reaction from my reaction in real life. And um, it, it did sort of remind me of, of some things that you've said in previous videos. But anyway, my question regarding this situation is, um, how do I continue to grow and learn from this position that um, that I've created for myself because of choices that I made? Um, how do I continue to grow and how do I minimize the level of stress that this high entropy person um, is is causing. I mean, I even one time in meditation, I, I wanted to connect with him and, um, and I was overwhelmed by a, a, the sense of just dark anger. Um, totally, I presume is his just this incredible chaos. Um, and, and I just haven't wanted to connect with him again at all. I don't even look at him when we're in court. Um, it's just a very sort of, you know, I mean, how do you protect yourself from a vortex of high entropy <laughs> um, while also taking advantage of this high stress situation where I can, where I'm still able to, you know, grow and learn more about myself and, and find a silver lining in that way. Okay. Well, often... We learn the most from things that are very difficult. When things are, when things are easy, we don't learn a whole lot 
from easy things. It's typically those things that cause us a lot of pain and cause us a lot of distress is where our, our, our biggest steps in learning take place. So when you have really big problems to deal with, usually you also have big opportunities to grow at the same time. So those two go together. So that's a, that's kind of a nice thought. There is that silver lining in the cloud, which is, uh, the, the big, the big problems carry with them big opportunities. So how do you deal with negativity that's just being poured out at you? Well, you have the ability to turn that off as far as you're receiving it, you're feeling it. If another person sends you negative thoughts, you don't have to receive them. You don't have to accept them. You can just turn them off. But to turn them off, you have to be able to disassociate yourself from that situation. In other words, you can't be, you can't be connected. If let's say you have a fear, you fear that person maybe, maybe will do something terrible to you. Well, that fear is a connection to that person. And if you have that connection, then that's a connection by which negative stuff can be sent to you. So if you are really annoyed at that person, if you really dislike that person tremendously, all those are connections that you have to that person. And then the negative energy sends can come to you over those connections. So if you can just let that person be, he is who he is. And you've seen, you've seen some of his energy and it's a horrible place to be in. And you're aware that he is probably one of the more miserable people, you know, anywhere. He's probably in the top, you know, one half a percent of miserable people. He's very unhappy. It's not just that he's unhappy with you. You just happen to be a way to vent his unhappiness. It really doesn't have much to do with you at all, except you were in the wrong place at the wrong time and got entangled. It's just the person is very, very negative, and that usually means there's a lot of self-loathing. There's a lot of dislike of self. And when you really dislike yourself, most people express that dislike of themselves by being harsh to others. You dislike yourself, then you're not very, you know, you're not very nice to other people. And the reason for that is that you feel completely unworthy and not good. And if other people find you to be unworthy and not good, that's horrible. That's terrifying. So what you do is you act really, really nasty so that when other people find you horrible, you can blow it off and say, well, that's just because I'm nasty. It's not because inside I'm a failure. You see, that's the logic, you know, where we're talking, you know, it's not really logic at all. It's, it's kind of not logical, but that's the way people think. So if I can be just really annoying to everybody, then I look around and I say, well, these people are annoyed with me, but that's just because of my behavior. It's not really because I'm a failure deep down inside. It's just my behavior. So that helps a person deal with their own self-loathing if they act in a way that makes other people angry because that then justifies the anger at the behavioral level rather than at the failure at the being level. 
So that's what's going on. So you run into a person like that who is goes out of their way to be annoying and upsetting to people, particularly people he thinks that can't fight back or that are easy to intimidate or, you know, that will uh, curl up and uh, put their tail between their legs and assume the victim role. You know, if he thinks he's got somebody like that, well, then he'll be twice as, as uh, unpleasant to those people because there's not a lot of pushback from people like that. When they do push back, then he gets enraged because they're not playing the game right. They were supposed to be passive victims. Now they're pushing back. So then that's enraging. They're not doing it right. It's all their fault. <laughs> you see. So you have to kind of see the mindset of somebody that's in that level of self-loathing and unhappiness. They're a very miserable person, and they are sharing their misery with you, unfortunately, in a way that you can't just escape easily because you're entangled in a legal issue. So you'll have to see that legal issue through. The way to deal with it is to detach yourself from that person, from, the, from that issue entirely. If you have no attachment to it, which is the fear, the being annoyed, the being upset, the being humiliated, if you've got all of that negative things going on, that's an attachment to that situation. Okay, so you detach yourself. Once you're detached, then that other person cannot touch you energetically. You do not receive it unless you open yourself to it on purpose. At that point, then he can rant and rave all he wants, and all you see is a disturbed person who is full of self-hatred and having a miserable day. And if anything, you have a little empathy for him and say, wow, being him must be horrible. And then that way, you not only don't, you know, you not only have negative toward him, you have a little positive toward him. Poor guy. His whole life has probably been like this. You know, his whole being is just consumed by negativity. And you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, be like, uh, what is it, uh, you know, Br'er Rabbit uh, in the Song of the South. He slaps the tar baby and then gets stuck because the tar baby is stucky, is sticky. He gets stuck because it's sticky. So you don't want to reach out and slap something that then you're going to stick to it. Well, you can think of it that way. If you get angry, then you're sticking to it. You're reaching out and you're you're slapping back because you're upset and you're angry and it sticks to you. That's the that's the problem. Be totally Apart from it, in which case it just won't bother you. Now, at the same time, you have to be aware of the possibilities, you know, what this person will do. People who are like that can get very desperate in their need not to face the real problem, which is their dislike of themselves. So if, if you are a burr under his saddle, you know, to what extent will he go? to, you know, to remove that. So if it's a possibility that, uh, you know, you're physically in danger or something else, then be careful. You know, you need to be very careful. You need to think about it. You may need to consult somebody that understands that sort of thing and can help you prepare for that. You know, whatever that means. You know, it depends. This whole thing will be over. It's not like legal things go on forever. They do have an ending, even if it takes, you know, some time to get there. 
So until that ending is done, and maybe for some time after, you need to be very cautious. But if you always deal with that person straightforwardly, like you say, in, when you're there, don't look at him. When you interact, just make, you know, he's somebody you have to deal with legally. But other than that, you don't have to have any connection whatsoever. And that will make it much better on your side. If you think there's a threat, then you need to, you know, talk to the people, you know, that might help you deal with that. If you think there's an actual threat going on to your to yourself, and that's a possibility when you deal with people who are that mentally ill, you never know what they might do. But that needs not to be a fear. It just needs to be an intelligent concern. If that's a fear, then you put you put energy into that possibility happening. You see, so you need not to fear that. You just need to understand it so that you can you can uh, be smart about what you do and what you don't do. So fear is never helpful, but being aware of the situation is. So I don't know, does that does that help you have? That's, that's extremely helpful. Thank you, Tom. There is, there is no, I'm not worried about any physical threat at, at this point, but the anxiety that I have, which I guess anxiety is fear. The anxiety yes. is mainly emotional distress and financial anxiety and and just sort of my own you know self-blame of how could i have trusted this person to begin with and opened such a door onto myself basically yeah and that's yes that's the fear that's the you know that's negativity coming from you how could i do that you know you're looking at yourself and you know you're finding some blame i started you know i got into this situation i should have known better I saw the signs and I ignored them. You know, you're going through all this stuff. Well, okay, learn from it. Yeah. You got a very important lesson here, but learn the lesson and then let it go. You can't keep beating yourself up or going down that path. It's just not helpful. Again, detach from the situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, detach from it where you're not wound up in it. You're, you don't have anxiety in it. You've dealt with all of that and you say, okay, here it is. Now we're going to have to work the legal thing to the end, and then that'll be the end of it. I've learned some things. I've learned some things about me. I've learned some things about how gullible I might be. I learned that that gullibility comes out of my own needs. I've learned this. I've learned that. And you, you know, you, you come out of it a better person. Yeah. But and, and you, yeah, and I feel it. I even feel my own anxiety. I, I know that it's actually a thread that he can yank. I feel it. I know it. Yes. And I need to sever that, and I've been working on that. Yeah. Yes. So you need to let go of that anxiety and find the, you know, what is the cause of that anxiety? Well, it'll be a fear, probably attached to uh, ego of yours. Mm-hmm. How dare he do that to me? You know, that's just your ego. How dare life be the way I don't want it? You know, it's okay. how dare people be that way to me? I don't deserve that. And that sort of thing. Well, that's just that's just ego. You have to accept that life is like this for whatever reason, for whatever part you had in it. It's just that's all water under the bridge. And now you just have to learn from it. And once you learn from it, it's not likely to happen again. Yeah. You see, so yeah, let it let it go. Accept it, and then let it go. Don't stay connected to it because that's the only way that his energy can pull on you. That's the only way. 
and you have the ability to cut that line because that's your own ego and your own fear that establishes that connection. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. That's extremely helpful. And um, can I ask my second question? Do I have sure? To? Okay. So my second question is: um, so I've 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 run a home experiment, um, you know, as an amateur scientist of sprouting lentils. Um, in a dish, in a dish with wet cotton, like we used to do, mm -hmm. and um, right. you know, and I would send intention to one dish and not the other, and I repeated the experiment a couple times, and the findings were interesting. Um, in that the the dish that I sent intention for, and each each round ran for three weeks um, before I repeated it again. So the one that I sent intention for was very delayed in sprouting. And then when it sprouted, it came out in one straight line. And the mm. second time I did it, it came out in two straight lines that crisscrossed in the middle. Um, and I've been meaning to kind of keep repeating this experiment. I know it's a home experiment. I would love to like find, you know, other home experiments that have a shorter cycle time. Mm. Um, but my question regarding that, you know, basically a couple of things. Do you have any reading into what this might mean? I know it's a home experiment, doesn't have a lot of controls and all that. But secondly, I find that in um, practicing my meditation and my intentions and all that stuff, I find it so much easier to um, focus intention, to do healing, to kind of do that, what I call, as in my mind, the metaphor I use is sending energy as opposed to receiving, receiving data, for example. So, so for example, I have a hard time remote viewing. Um, partly I find it boring and annoying and I'm impatient. Uh, partly I, I do it well one or two times and then the ego interferes right away. Um, uh, but I would really like to kind of develop this what I perceive as the other side of my intuition. I don't know if I'm misperceiving or what it is, but it just feels to me that one, one aspect of intuition, this like sending energy out is just easier, comes more easily to me. Even, even manifesting healing is easier than diagnosing or receiving data from, for remote viewing and that sort of thing. Um, and, but I don't know. And it also feels, it feels strenuous. It feels like an effort, like, like, you know, that sort of situation <laughs> when I know it needn't be. And sometimes it doesn't feel that way necessarily, but, but I do feel that like, you know, send, you know. Um, so anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Well, they are different things. You know, the sending and receiving require different skills. They're not exactly the same thing. They're both in, intuitive but when you are receiving it depends on the, how you're doing that but if you're doing remote viewing um, using a, a remote viewing target site to you know where you uh, get a number try to remote view the picture that is associated with that number and then you type the number in and up comes a picture if you're remote viewing like that where you are going to get the truth data very soon after you do it uh, there's a there's a higher level of uh, performance anxiety with that because the truth data is soon to follow. 
and that's still in your mind. So kind of the, oh, am I going to get it right or not? It's kind of a thought. Whereas when you're healing, it's not really about am I going to get it right or not because it's long term. You know, what actually happens is going to be like with those seeds, you know, a week, two weeks later sometime. So the the truth isn't quite so immediate. So it isn't quite so much in your mind. So that's one one difference is you get more performance anxiety when you receive um, because you're you're going to get the you're either going to get the answer right or wrong when you're receiving. When you're healing, well, it may manifest in four or five different ways, and any of them would all be okay. Or you're doing your plants, and your plants come in lines or crosses or, or uh, you know, nice, neat little rows, however they do. It doesn't matter. It's all a success, however that works out. It's not as, as um, cut and dried as, say, the remote viewing. So there's less performance anxiety. There's less uh, having to worry about the, the result. The result will kind of take care of itself. All you do is give it the intent and let the result take care of itself. That's a much, uh, you know, that's an easier thing to do. Now the other, the other, uh, the other issue besides performance anxiety is that when you receive, okay, you have to be open to something and be able to then receive that something clearly. And often the intellect gets in the way there much more than the intellect gets in the way when you're transmitting and you're trying to send something now you tell your intellect sit down be quiet i'm getting at an intuitive level i'm in the right state i feel i feel the state's right so i'm just going to use my intent and send well that works pretty well but when you receive you need to be in the receive state and you need to be in it exactly when the message comes Right. Whereas when you heal, you do your healing when you feel it's right. Mm-hmm. You get into meditation, you get into point consciousness, you, everything's humming along, you let go to stuff, now you're ready, then you heal. Well, when you receive, you have to receive whenever the message comes. You're not sending the message. So you're going to have to receive it now, ready or not, here it is. See, So that's a little harder thing to do. So you have to learn to just be open and let whatever's there come into your mind, and then you you perceive it. Whereas the intellect wants to judge it. The intellect wants to get it right. That's a performance anxiety. And the intellect wants to assess it and see if it makes sense. Because that's what we do with all our data in the waking world. Stuff comes to us in our normal world, in the physical reality, and we have to make sense of it. And it's our making sense of it is what makes that data useful or not useful. Because, you know, we get information overload. All sorts of information comes to us. Particularly now we're in the information age. We get tons of information. And what we do is we look at it and immediately we judge it. We sort it. We decide what's important, what isn't. We deal with what's important and we ignore what isn't. That's our habit to work that way. So now we're going to remote view and it's hard for us to break that habit. That intellect wants to do the job that it's used to doing. And as soon as information comes in, it wants to assess it. It wants to judge it and decide whether that's the real information or just some noise. But you can't determine that. The intellect has no information to go on to judge it. 
So it just gets in the way. So you need, it's a little harder when you're receiving to get your intellect to sit down and be quiet because your intellect wants to do what it always does, which is vet the information that's coming to it, assess it. And in this case, the intellect is completely useless because it doesn't have any information about that information. It doesn't know the source. It doesn't, it doesn't know anything. So you're asking a blind person to give you a description, you know, of, the, of your neighborhood. You know, it, it's not useful. So you have to tell the intellect to sit down, be quiet, just let you get the information, whatever it is, and you'll figure out whether it's significant or not later on, but not now. Hard to do because you have a habit to break. So the, the sending and receiving are really two very different skill sets. And the receiving is the harder skill set because it requires more focus, uh, more uh, uh, control over the intellect than does the sending. The sending's all your way at your time when you're ready. The receiving is none of those. So, yeah, two different things. They just take practice. And if you're a person who is where performance is important to you, then you'll do remote viewing. And if you don't get a lot of them right, you won't want to do it anymore because you don't like to play games that you can't win. So that's just a personality. And if you don't want to play games that you can't win, then you say, ah, this is boring. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, it's a waste of time. That's because you don't want to fail. And there's no way for you to ensure that you're not going to fail so, again, no control, and uh, it's going to take a lot more practice. So it's it's just not as much fun to you because doing it and getting it right, you know, thinking about those little seeds and having them all do something amazing, like all grow, you know, really nicely in a little line, well, that's immediate feedback. It's positive. And if it was negative and you thought about those seeds and they didn't do anything different than the other ones, well, you would have said, well, maybe I didn't get good enough dirt in there. Maybe those seeds were damaged and you'd do it again. But you wouldn't be defeated because you can you can make up all kinds of reasons why that might have happened. It didn't have anything to do with you not performing. Whereas if you're remote viewing a target and you get it wrong, well, you just got it wrong, period. <laughs> There's nothing else that you can, you know, no other way you're going to look at it or, or slice it or dice it to come out where, well, it really wasn't your problem, you know, it was some other problem, you know, because the computer must associated my number with the wrong, <laughs> with the wrong picture. Well, of course, that's not going to happen. It's a computer, and there's a one-to-one correspondence between those numbers and those pictures. So it's just going to be a little harder for you to do that, but you can do it, and it'd be important to do it just so that you can learn those other lessons. Again, the stuff that's harder has bigger lessons in it. The stuff that's easier has easier lessons in it that usually aren't as big because you're already partway down that, that path. You don't, you know, it's not as, you don't need to learn as much. So it's easy. And remote viewing is the best way to practice that. Well, that's one good way to practice it because it is, you know, it's a, it's almost immediate feedback and it tells you exactly, you know, how, how good you were at the remote viewing. So in that sense, it's a really good thing to do. But it's not the only thing 
that you can do. In the healing side, if that suits you better, you can do the diagnosis where you look at people that have illnesses and then you try to see what the illness is, what part of the body is is affected by that illness and how serious is it. So, and you can get some, some information out of the database. Well, here's, uh, you know, here's health on this axis going up and then here's time on this axis going, uh, I got my fingers going wrong, going that way, you know, X and Y axis. I'm trying to make the picture come out, but the camera doesn't really do that. I wave my hands around and you can't see either one of them. So that's not useful. Anyway, think of an axis with, uh, health on the Y axis and time on the X axis. So you can ask for that person's health, a curve of the amount of health during time. That'll give you a prognosis of whether or not they, how they doing in time. So zero on the health axis is death and 100% is extremely healthy and you can just let it vary however it does. So there's lots of things you can do besides remote viewing about getting data from a database, but everything has its own style. Everything works in its own way. So just because you get good at one thing doesn't mean you'll be good at all those things that have to do with getting data from databases. You have to learn and get used to the characteristics of every individual thing. Yeah, it's not true that you, well, I've, my intuition's pretty good now, so I should be able to do everything that has to do with intuition. That's like, well, you know, I, I know a little bit of mathematics now, so I should be able to do all the math there is in the world. No, it doesn't work like that. You still, every different piece of math you come up against, whether it's, uh, you know, vector analysis or, you know, integral equations or differential equations or whatever, you have to start and learn that just because you know math and understand how math works doesn't let you do all kinds of math. It's the same way with the intuitive side. Just because you get good at one thing, you still have to work at understanding the process of each thing individually. So remote viewing is a good one because the remote viewing can be very handy, you know, to see things like you're backing out and you have a, you have a truck on one side of you and, and then you have some kind of SUV on the other side and you're driving a smaller car and you want to back out of parking space, but you can't see anything that's coming because you've got a big car on either side of you. Well, remote viewing is handy because you can just remote view what's out behind your car and know whether, you know, whether it's safe or not. And then, of course, you always are skeptical, so you back out very, very slowly. So in case something is there, there's time for you to stop and time for them to miss you. But in any case, you can, remote viewing can be a, can be a useful thing. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's extremely helpful. Um, is that the same thing as like checking in if my car got a ticket? Cause I can do that with very good accuracy sort of by check in, but. Exactly. It is, you see, and what you're doing there is you are getting data out of the database and that's easy for you, but that's easy for you because you're getting it as a feeling, not as, not as a visual, you see. Getting visual data, visual data is very precise data. When you look at a picture, that's a lot of precision. There's a lot of bandwidth taken up with that picture. You know, there's either a mountain in it or there's not. There's either cactus growing on the right side or there's not. It's all very, very specific. Whereas a feeling isn't nearly so specific. A feeling is, you know, is there something wrong? Is there a problem there with a ticket? 
Yeah. Well, the feeling can just be any kind of sort of negative, uh-oh, kind of a feeling, and you've got your answer. So mm -hmm. it's a much lower bandwidth than pictures, and it's easier to work in a feeling space. Well, what you should do with your remote viewing is you can reduce that to a feeling space by re instead of just looking at the whole picture, doing it in pieces. In other words, you look at that number that corresponds to a picture and you say, well, what does it smell like? Is there an odor to it? And then wait. What are the dominant colors? And then you wait. You write them down. What, uh, you know, is it, a, is, it, is it sad or happy? Um, you know, that kind of thing. What's the mood? Again, feeling stuff. You know, is it sad? Is it happy? Is, is the mood, um, you know, uh, what, uh, like party-ish and, and fun? Or is the mood somber? Or is there no mood at all? It's just neutral. Maybe a landscape doesn't have any particular mood to it. <clears throat> you know, is it, is it upbeat or downbeat? You know, it's like a, 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 a city of New York from the air with, you know, people and cars going every which way. You know, that would be a busy picture as opposed to maybe a, a, a picture of a flower would, would not be busy. So you ask all these questions for all your senses. What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What's it sound like? You know, what are the sounds? Is it happy? Is it sad? And all the things you can think of. And every time you get something, write that down. And you'll be surprised. Now you're, you've converted the picture into feeling space. And you're working more in the feeling space, which is an easier, lower bandwidth space to work in. And it's much easier to get that perception than it is to get, uh, you know, 300 DPI, you know, photographic vision, you know, of a, of a picture. That's a lot harder to get. So do your remote viewing. That's what you're doing. You're kind of remote viewing in, in uh, feeling space rather than remote viewing in vision. Right. Vision space. I, I, so, I do that. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. That's extremely helpful. It's right on. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Sasha. Also, Tom, I know from some of our remote viewing friends that those healing hits are substantial, genuine hits as far as the protocol of the remote healers goes. So you can uh, acquire a lot of information from the feeling of sure. uh, those things. Yeah, don't, don't uh, reject feeling space just for visual space. Mm. Everything isn't visual, and visual is actually harder to deal with because it's got a lot more bandwidth and there's a lot more specificity to it. Mm. You know, it's hard to get a general picture. <laughs> it's easy to get a general feeling. You know, pictures tend to be highly specific, which gives the intellect a much better thing to try to grab hold of and sort for you. Whereas the feeling, it's a little more nebulous and the intellect doesn't really do its work in feeling so much. So it kind yeah. of leaves you, leaves you alone more in the feeling space. Yeah. And you can feel all kinds of things. I know people <laughs> who say, I'm not visual. I just don't visualize things. But when I go get information, I just feel. And this last time I went out getting information, what I felt was that there was this red car parked along the curb next to this house that was uh, brick, but not the red bricks, the kind of uh, silvery whitish bricks. There was a green hedge all the way around, you know, and they describe a picture, a visual picture. They swear they don't get any any visuals, 
but they feel things. And it's just another way of expressing the data. Because if you told them, no, get, you know, just sh tell me the picture. You're obviously getting all the data for the picture. Just tell me what the picture is. They can't do that. But they can tell you in feelings what that picture is and all sorts of detail. Yeah. You see, how do you feel a red car? You know, what does red feel like? You know, they're getting the information, but they're interpreting as feeling because for them, that makes it easier for them to get it than if they try to interpret it as a picture, a visual, because they're convinced they don't get visuals. But they can feel the color red as opposed to the color blue. So we get information and then we process it. And we process it into sense data. Well, we also process it into feeling data. So it's amazing how much detail you can get into a feeling if you start working in, in feeling space. Yeah, that's a that's a great suggestion. Thank you so much. And then, thank um, you. I'm sorry, but but did, Tom, did you have any thoughts on why the lentils came out straight line? Is that like really lowering entropy? Um, well, not really, but it was one of two things. One, the intent you had had a picture, and maybe in your mind, when you had an intention, you were seeing little. Sprigs coming up. Often when we intend things, we have, we kind of have visuals of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And you may have seen this, you know, these crops coming up like that. And you didn't actually think of it as coming up in a straight line, but that's the way it was in your, in your vision. In other words, you didn't see it from the air looking down where you would see them scattered around. You were looking at the edge, maybe of a field, something like that, or at the edge, at the dirt level edge, and all you could see were these stalks coming up. So it, it was it either was something like that, that in your intent, there was some bias toward that, that sort of a picture, because you were imagining them or seeing them in a particular way. All these little stalks, one next to the other, and they're all hardy, and they're green, and they're happy, and they're growing fast. But if you saw them in your mind as a bunch of little stalks side by side, then maybe that's what you got. So that's one thing. The other thing would be is that if the larger conscious system just thought it would be fun to make them all grow in a little line, look, you got a crop circle. Well, maybe, a, you know, a crop line or uh, something else. If you get good enough, maybe they'll come in real intricate geometric patterns like the crop circles. So it could have just been the system just, having a little fun with your experiment to give you a little more uh, interest in trying to figure out what in the heck is going on here and why. Very nice. Thank you so much, Tom. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, we're going to move on to uh, Cheryl's question. She can't be with us for the entire time, so we'll move on with that. And she's on listening mode, so I'll be reading the question for her. Um, Cheryl asks, Tom, I have changed since I decided to put all my focus into getting rid of ego, fears, and beliefs. My friends and family all noticed the improved version of the Cheryl show. They are now asking me a lot of questions. How did you do that, and why are you so different? I tell them that we can grow up by getting rid of fears, ego, and beliefs. Many times I'm getting the same thing. 
but I need my ego or I would not feel good about myself over and over. I tell them the same thing. Ego is in the service of fear and does not help us. It seems that there is so much confusion about the difference between ego and self-esteem. As I see it, ego covers up the fact that you don't feel good enough, and healthy self-esteem is the understanding that you are good enough, which brings a feeling of worthiness. Can you please expand on this concept and talk about the differences between the two? First, the ego, yes, is awareness in the service of fear. Okay, that's just the way uh, I define it in MBT. Okay? And there's also awareness in the service of love. And that awareness can have, um, you know, it also has a self-image. So being self-aware is what awareness is. Awareness is aware of self. So that is not the definition of ego. Sometimes when people are not being very specific, they will say that ego is just self-awareness. But that's not really the case. There are two kinds of self-awareness that we have. So I guess maybe in general we could say ego was self-awareness, but it's not only self-awareness. There's self-awareness in the service of fear. There's self-awareness in the service of love. Okay, One of them is aware of self and aware of how self, you know, the, 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 um, awareness in the service of love is aware, aware of self. It's aware of how self interacts with others. It's aware of others. Okay. And in the ego, in service, uh, awareness in the service of fear, it is aware of the fear. It is aware of the self and how the self rela relates to that fear. And it's aware of the, the fear in relation to the self to others. So there's a difference. One's fear-based. The other one's love-based. In Freudian uh, speak, um, the ego is fear-based. The superego is love-based or caring-based. Now, it's just a very, very general uh, statement there. Uh, but... That, that would be the way to, to kind of map this to the Freudian model, would be to let the, the awareness and the service of love be the superego. So we have both of those. Now, awareness of self is necessary. You have to be aware that you exist. Otherwise, how would you interact with somebody else if you didn't even know you were there? You know, I mean, that's silly. We, we need to be aware of ourself. And we need to be aware of how we interact with other people. But if the way we interact with other people is through fear, which means through our, our buttons, you know, things that set, of, set us off, things that we interact because of fear, fear is the motivator, then that's what I'm calling ego. Now, a good self-esteem is very positive. Bad self-esteem is very negative. Self-esteem basically is how much you like yourself or dislike yourself. Do you hold yourself in, in high esteem or in low esteem? If you have low self-esteem and don't like yourself, then you're very limited in what you have to give to anybody else. You know? So that means you know all of us have a capacity to love. 
Some of us who are full of ego have a much smaller capacity to love, or those of us who have fear have a much smaller capacity to love than those who don't. Okay, so if your self-esteem is low and you don't feel good about who you are, then you're going to be full of fear, full of ego, full of beliefs, and your life is going to be mostly unhappy, uh, stressful, miserable struggle. Whereas if your self-esteem is good and you really feel good about yourself, and when I say good about yourself, it doesn't mean that that is, oh, I'm a wonderful person. I'm so great. How could anybody not like me because I am just nearly, you know, perfect and everybody should just, you know, hand me money as I walk by because I am just so awesome. You know, that's not what I mean, feeling good about yourself. That is falls under the heading of narcissism. And that's not what I mean by good self-esteem. By good self-esteem means that you don't have a fear of being in a, inadequate. You feel adequate. Not super adequate, anything. Just you feel okay with who you are. I am okay. And I have, I have issues, maybe. I have fears. I have ego. But I can work on it. I can succeed. You see, if you feel good about yourself, there's always a way up. And you know the direction up from down. When you feel bad about yourself, you're not sure there's a way up. You think that, you know, you, there is a ceiling that you can't get by because you're just not that worthy to go further than that. So when you have low self-esteem, you're very limited in the choices you can make. Most of your choices are defensive. Most of your choices are in laying out lists of what you can't do and why you can't do it, as opposed to doing the opposite thing. So, yes, ego is awareness in the service of fear. It's not a good thing because fear is not a good thing. But most of us have fear and we have ego which is really a strategy for us dealing with that fear. Our ego is a strategy for pretending that the fear isn't there. That's what the ego does. That's how it serves the fear. It makes the fear seem not so frightening, invisible, not really there. It's the rug that you bury the fear under. That's the, that's the ego's job. Okay. So we don't want that, but we do have to feel positive about ourselves, not negative about ourselves. That's essential. That's like this, when we were talking to uh, Sacha about this person who is so negative, that's a person who feels very negative about himself. And that's probably an extreme case. That's how you are when you feel really, really negative about yourself. You tend to cover that up with a lot of but, uh, arrogance. If you feel good about yourself, you don't need to be arrogant. There's no, no, there's no need for that. Arrogant is not really in your list of choices. You have no need to, to be that way. You only are going to be arrogant when you have fear. Fear that you're really down deep, not really much. You're kind of a small little bit of nothing. 
You cover that fear up with arrogance. So that arrogance is, is your ego. See, that's how those things kind of interrelate with each other. So we need to start by getting rid of the fear because until we get rid of the fear, we're not going to get rid of the negative feelings about ourselves. They're generated by the fear that we have. Okay, Tom, another portion of that question was, also there are many people who are successful professional athletes, business people and artists who have huge egos. Did the ego somehow drive them to where they are, where they think that they are better than everyone else at what they do? which helped them to manifest their success, or was it just talent that got them there? Well, now you are defining two different kinds of success. There is success in a big picture, which is growing up, getting rid of your ego and beliefs, getting rid of your fears, and that defines success. And then there's success out in the physical world, which means generally control, power, force. We define that as success. You know, that comes in the form of money usually. If you have lots of money, you have lots of control, lots of power, and lots of force. So those are two different sorts of success altogether. So when you say that a person who's a success out in the bigger world, that doesn't mean that they have... um, you know, high quality of consciousness, and that's why they got to be a great big success. In the outer world where fear dominates in that outer world, then, uh, you know, there are many places where being arrogant will, you know, help you succeed in a world full of fear. So when you live in a world full of fear, then, you know, sometimes your ego will help you go up a ladder. Perhaps because you have a fear that you're a little bit of nothing, then you get very, very competitive to trying to prove to yourself that you're actually okay. And what you, the way you do that, the way your ego does that, is by trying to beat everybody else. And if you can't beat them fairly, you find ways to cheat. You know, you go behind their backs, you make stuff up, you poison, you know, you poison them in some way, not literally, but figuratively, you know, by saying unpleasant things about them, whatever. So just because you can get to be successful in the control power force world by lying, cheating, and stealing doesn't mean that you're a success in the bigger picture. Matter of fact, it generally says you're a failure in the bigger picture. And even though you've got more money than you can spend, you are probably full of stress full of anger, full of, full of uh, upset, full of negativity, and you are not happy. You are not satisfied, and you are struggling. You're an unhappy person, and you think that maybe if you just got more and more and more, you'd be happier, so maybe you just drive on. You know what? I'm a billionaire, but what I really want to do is make more money. You know, why is that? You know, it'd be hard to find a way to spend that much money, even, you know, the rest of your life. But a lot of people who get that much money, their biggest thing in life is to make more of it. You know, why is that? You know, that's a, that's being driven. And it's being driven by something other than love. You know, it's being, it's just a, you know, something they have to do. They're trying to get to that place where they feel better. And you can't get it by amassing stuff 
So that's the thing. We got different successes here. Yes, in a world full of fear, a world that runs on fear, a world that runs on push, you know, rather than cooperate, runs with, you know, runs on, on competition, then being dysfunctional maybe will help you succeed in that dysfunctional world. But only succeed in a way that is little picture success, not big picture success. And no matter how much you succeed in little picture success, you're going to be unhappy and miserable. Even if all the pictures taking of you look like you're happy because you've got this smile you've learned to paste on your face whenever a camera's around, people who really know you at a deep personal level will know that you're very, uh, very unhappy person. So there's just two kinds of success, Cheryl. The one of them really isn't worth much. It's just control, power, force. The other one is invaluable. That's the one we're here to, to, to create. And for that, we need to get rid of the fear, get rid of the ego, and get rid of the beliefs. Tom Sherrill asks also about the nuts and bolts of getting rid of the ego. You said, make all your interactions about others. Even if you're acting at first, put yourself in their shoes, see it from their perspective. As I focused here, I noticed things in my head like, I wish others would think about my perspective sometimes and my life has nothing to do with me. It seems that looking back at this was the last last death throes of the ego wanting to be at center stage, like it was fighting for its life. This went on for about six months. Then one day there was a shift. As I focused on others, the voice just stopped and became quiet. I noticed a serenity within myself that I never had. All of a sudden, I liked to focus on others. I wanted to strengthen my ability to care for others, and everything changed. Can you yes. talk about this shift? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, the way that works, and what uh, Cheryl found out, is that as long as you approach life with the attitude of, well, what about me? You know, you know how, ca- how can I get something out of this? What's in it for me? What about me? I'm doing all the work. Somebody else needs, you know, to help me. As long as it's focused on you, you're not going to find that people are very willing to help you. They will, they will try to shift all the unpleasant work as much as they can towards you because you're trying very hard to avoid it. You're trying very hard for somebody else to do this. So you'll find that the more it's about you, the less other people are really are really willing to give to you because you're demanding it you want it on the other hand when you when you actually make it about other and you finally let go of that yeah i'm giving i'm giving everything but nobody's giving anything to me well that's just your ego when you get past that point and just give to people what happens is that everybody then wants to give something to you Everybody starts being nicer to you instead of everybody kind of holding their hand out like that. Eh, back off. Everybody wants to give you a hug, you see, because now you're being nice to them and they feel that niceness, which makes them want to be nice to you. But when you're growling under your breath at them and saying, you're not doing it right, that's a cold prickly for them. 
you're not doing anything for me and that's not good because I deserve more. Well, then they feel like going the other way. They don't feel like giving you a hug because you're giving them this cold prickly that you think they're doing it wrong and they need to change and they need to change now. You know, well, nobody likes to deal with that kind of a feeling, so they push back. So as long as you're at the center of your universe and want everybody else to be nice to you because you deserve it and you need it and you're being nice to everybody and they're just not reciprocating, you're going to live in a prickly, cold world. That isn't going to be much fun. And then you'll probably go into more self-pity. Oh, woe is me. Look, I do everything for everybody else and nobody does anything for me. You know, and at that point, everybody's trying to avoid you because you're a downer. See, whereas when you were doing things for other people, now you're an upper. You're not a downer. Now people want to be around you because you're positive and you're pleasant and you do things for them. And, you know, because you do so much for them, they just feel like doing things for you, too, because you deserve it. You see, you can't, you know, you can't push people into being different than the way they are. But you can give them the space and the opportunity to grow themselves so as you grow up you help everybody around you grow up and as they grow up they start doing more for other people not just themselves so you got a room full of people and every one of them self-centered well that's an unhappy family but if you take just one person and have them start giving then all the rest of them will start giving a little more too and pretty soon you can change that whole family into a bunch of people who aren't so self-centered and they're giving to each other but you have to do it by example. You can't lecture them and say, listen, I'm the only one giving around here. You guys need to straighten up. That will just, they see that as a cold prickly um, condemnation of who and how they are. And they will just push back on that. That isn't going to help them grow up. So that's why I say the only thing you can do to help other people grow up is grow yourself up and then interact with those people. That will help them grow up much more than anything else you can do to them. You can hand them a book. You can give them a lecture. But that isn't going to do anything. Change yourself and then hang out with them. And they'll start to change as well. So that's kind of the ethic of, of how that works. If you feel like you're doing all the work and everybody's taking advantage of you, well, it's because that's the, that's the ego. That's the self-centeredness that you have for that view. What you need to do is learn how to do that work with joy. Right? We talked about uh, when T.D. asked the question, what is it about being present? You have to do the things you need to do without negativity. You need to do them by positively embracing them and giving yourself to it and doing it because it's a good thing to do. It's helpful for others. And if you have that helpful attitude and you are in the present moment without that negativity, then other people will say, oh, you need, I could help you with some of that. Here, why don't, why don't, uh, I, you know, I wash and you dry? Somebody will come over and want to help because there you are humming a little tune, washing all the dishes and drying them too. And somebody will just want to help you. Wherever you're over there grinding your teeth, you know, swearing under your breath, everybody leaves you alone. They walk away from you. You can do all the dishes yourself. Thank you. See, that's the, that's the difference. And that's why it works that way.